Amen. Praise God. I want you to open your Bible with me to John chapter 13. We're going to begin a series of messages leading up to our resurrection celebration that's coming up here on April the 9th. Um, by the way, we will have our we will have our um, early morning sunrise service. After that, we'll have breakfast and we'll have Sunday school together as adults in uh, the, the uh, worship center on Resurrection Sunday. So hope you're looking forward to that. Hope you're preparing to be a part of that. And uh, you'll be inviting other people to come and be a part of our resurrection celebration coming up. But leading up to that service, we're going to be in John chapter 13, and we're going to look at Jesus's love. So the, the title of the message series is Love Like Jesus, and Jesus is the greatest example of love. Um, I'm not the tallest guy, and uh, I'm not shaped right for basketball at all. I'm not very good at basketball, never been very good at basketball, but whenever I was a kid, we had some basketball goals, and me and some of my friends, we, we couldn't dunk on a 10-foot goal, you know what I'm saying? So you know what we did? We lowered it down to the 8-foot mark, and we could dunk on the 8-foot goal, right? We had to lower that standard just a little bit, because the standard height is 10 feet, Right? How many of you can dunk on a 10-foot goal? Anybody? Chris Larson? He's the only one? Yeah, I said, okay, I see Daniel. He's, all he's got to do is just, you know, reach up and touch it. So there's very few of us that can hit that standard, right? Um, and, and so what do we do in our lives whenever we can't reach that standard? Whatever that standard might be, we lower the goal, right? We lower the standard. And for many of us, We've judged our Christianity based on a lower standard. We judge how well we're doing based on how others are doing around us. We lower the bar and then we can reach that goal, right? I'm better than they are. I'm doing better than probably 90% of all the other Christians out there. So when we ask the question, are you truly a loving Christian? What's the standard? And what I want to share with you this morning, the biblical truth that I want you to see today is that Jesus is the standard by which we measure our love. Jesus is that perfect example of love. There is no greater love than Jesus, right? John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And when Jesus said that in John 15, Jesus was speaking specifically about what he himself was about to do, that he was going to be rejected, condemned, flogged, led up a hill called Calvary, nailed to a cross and suspended between heaven and earth, and he was going to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what Jesus did. And that's the standard of love. Who Jesus is and all that he ever did is a standard by which we must measure our own love. Now, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And the only way that we can be perfect is that the love of Jesus would come upon us. And that we would be an example of that love to other people around us. 
And so I want you to stand with me and we're going to read the first part of John chapter 13 together. And then we'll dig into it just a little bit as we look at the example, the greatest example of love. John says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Let's stop there. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your word today. Father, we know that your word is life and truth. Lord, we know that your word gives us the perfect example, the standard by which we are to measure our lives, and that is Jesus Christ himself the perfect picture of love. Lord, I pray that you would help each and every one of us, those that know you, Lord, that that we would follow that example and that we would know that we are loved infinitely by you and that we would walk in that love toward others around us. Father, for those that there's someone here that doesn't know you today, Lord, that they would look upon the cross and see the perfect love of Jesus. His blood poured out for their soul. And Lord, that they would put their faith in him and be saved. These things we pray in the strong, matchless name of our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. I'm so glad that you're here today because I want you to know about the love of Jesus. And I want that to be something that it permeates your being. That you know who Jesus is and you know what he did for you. And you live that out in your life, your daily life, in the way that you treat other people, the way that you speak to other people, and and the purpose and the way your life is driven, that it would be driven by love. Jesus' love is first, number one, a steadfast love. Now look again with me in the passage. For Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world, out of this world, to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. The Greek there uh, is istopantelis. For those of you that love Greek and Hebrew, most of you probably don't give a rat's behind. You don't care. But I'm going to tell you what that word means. though. It means into the end. Now, it doesn't mean that he loved them all the way up to that point and stopped. What it means is he loved them all the way through it all. That no matter what happened, he was never going to stop loving them. That he loved them with an endless love. He loved them with a love that would never die. The Hebrew equivalent, we talked about that that kind of love in the New Testament there and, and what those words mean in Greek. But in the Old Testament Hebrew, the word is chesed. Now you've got to get that little guttural sound. When you say that word chesed, because it's not just chesed and it's not kesed, it's chesed. 
And that's why whenever you're in Israel, you need to stand at least three feet away from anyone who's speaking to you. Because you don't want them to chesed all over you. In Lamentations, by the way, that word occurs nearly 200 times in the Old Testament. God's steadfast love or his unfailing love is how that word is uh, rendered. But one of my favorite passages is Lamentations 3, 21 through 24, because it looks like God has given up on his people. The walls are torn down and Jeremiah is lamenting all the judgment that's come against his people. But yet he remembers. He says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The chesed of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. In other words, Jeremiah says, the only thing I need is the love of my God. And I'll get through Jesus' disciples needed to know his chesed. They needed to know that he was not giving up on them. They were all going to run and flee and depart. And and it was going to be a tumultuous time. And it was going to shake and rattle their faith in Jesus to watch him. Beaten, smitten, forsaken, condemned to death. The crowd was going to yell, crucify him, crucify him. Then they were going to hang him on the cross. And they needed to know the steadfast love of the Lord in those moments. And so Jesus sets that perfect example. His love is a steadfast love. You know, I have a problem with people who use the phrase, and you may have heard it before by some, even some preachers, some pastors have used the phrase, God is madly in love with you. Have you ever heard anybody say that? I have a problem with that. First of all, God's not mad, period. He's perfectly sane and reasonable in everything that he does. I know why we use that phrase, but we shouldn't apply it to God. But secondly, he doesn't fall in and out of love like human beings. Human love will fail. If you put all your eggs in in the basket of human love, that basket's going to be toppled at some point. The love of the Lord never fails. Jesus' love for us, not just for his disciples, but for us today, is an unending love. And you can bank on that love. You can know that his love is steadfast for you. He's never going to give up on you. Not only is it a steadfast love, Jesus' love is a selfless love. Secondly, I want you to look at that with me again. Look at verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Now, let's just stop there for a minute. We see a lot of the the inner uh, psychology of Jesus here. John just kind of pulls that curtain back for for a minute and lets us see what Jesus knows. We understand that Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. 
Now you imagine how devastating that must have been. That one of his own, he, he even said, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is the devil? Jesus was disturbed by that fact that even one of his disciples would be the one to betray him. So Jesus is knowing that and yet still serving and still loving. And so it's a selfless love. But not only that, Jesus knows that his time is coming. As he looks forward, he knows that he's looking to the cross. He's already revealed to his disciples that he was going to die. He knew that on the third day he would be raised again. But Jesus knew all of these things were about to happen. And yet Jesus was willing to slow down and sit and have supper with his disciples. Now, many of us, when we're, we're planning or preparing anything, it doesn't matter what it is. If, I mean, if we've got a hair appointment, we clear our schedules you know, leading up to the hair appointment so that we make sure that we don't have any interruptions and nobody's going to get in the way of us getting to the salon so that we can get our hair done. You know what I'm talking about? Men too? Well, I said us. We, we don't like interruptions. In fact, we don't like to slow down for anyone. In fact, whenever we see a need, sometimes we just justify passing on by because we say we're just too busy. But here's Jesus. He's got the, the highest agenda. The most important task is on his schedule. And yet, he's slowing down long enough to sit and have supper with his disciples. And then he rises from the table, strips off his outer garments, wraps a towel around his waist and begins to serve. Jesus' love is selfless. I mean, Jesus could have said, now, I'm going back to God the Father. I know that I am God the Son. And he could have appointed someone else to come and wash, wash disciples' feet if he wanted to. He could have appointed someone else to, to do the dirty work. But no, Jesus is humble enough, being master and Lord of all, to become the lowliest and do the task of a servant. Now you understand the context. Back in the day, people wore sandals. Leather sandals. They didn't wear closed shoes like we have today. And they would walk through the dust and the dirt. And all that dust and dirt and grime would get in those sandals and get in between their toes and make their feet dirty. And so it was standard that when you went into a home, there would be a, a basin of water, a pitcher and a basin. There, a pitcher of water and a basin. And there would be a servant assigned to the task of whenever a guest would come in, they would stop at the door and that servant would wash their feet. Now you imagine that, just someone, as you, you go to someone else's house to visit and there's somebody there and their job is to take your sandals off, touch all over your feet, washing your feet. Can you feel that right now? You imagine how that feels? I imagine it tickled a little bit. But imagine that servant. just that. And by the way, I, my, my love language is touch. 
And so whenever you tickle me, I feel like you've just violated my love language. Don't tickle, Brother Josh. I don't appreciate it. But you got somebody right there at the, at the door and they do that for you. Well, when they came, when those disciples came in, there was no one there. There was no servant there to do that dirty deed. And so Jesus took that position. He took that place. He knew that his time had come. He knew that the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas to betray him. And when I think about that, I think about all the disciples that Jesus is about to serve in this way. As Jesus washed those feet, he was washing the feet of Thomas, the doubter. The one who is going to say, no, nah, I, don't, I don't know if I believe this. And several times Thomas would say, Lord, we don't know where you're going. No, I don't know if I can believe that. And he will forever be known as the doubting disciple. And he was in that crowd. And then there was Andrew, and he was the, the show me disciple. Jesus said, if, you, if it's really real and everything you're telling me is true, just pull back the curtain of heaven. Let us see God the Father, and then that's enough. We'll believe you. And then you have Peter, the denier. And Jesus is going to tell him at the end of this ch chapter, he's going to tell him before the rooster crows three times, you will um, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter is the denier. And then there's Judas, the betrayer. Now you imagine what this must have been like. Here is Jesus knowing that Judas has already in his heart sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He's betrayed him in his heart already. He hasn't done the deed yet, but he's about to. And there's Jesus kneeling at the feet of Judas, washing his feet. That's a picture of true humility. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 20, the Bible says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. In other words, the Master, the Lord, the Sovereign of Heaven became the lowliest servant on earth for you and me. But this was simply a picture for the disciples to see that Jesus didn't come for Himself. He came for you and me. He came because you and I needed a God to save us from our sin. We needed a God who would condescend to us. He would come down on our level and He would live that sinless life that you and I could never live. And then He would die on a sinner's cross for you and me. That's why Jesus came. That was His purpose. And it was a selfless love that motivated Him to come for you and me. But not only was it that steadfast love and selfless love. Thirdly, the love of Jesus is a serving love. He laid aside his outer garments and he took a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, Jesus is doing the lowliest of the lowest task in the house. 
He's not serving the table, which is a a more prominent position in the household. He was not preparing the meal, which was an even more prominent position for someone that needed to be trusted. He wasn't guarding the door. He was washing the feet. Christ-like service is first particular. Jesus met a particular need at a particular time for a particular group of people. He didn't serve everyone, but he did for a few what they needed at the moment. Now, that's, what, that's something that we can learn about Christ-like service. Is that it is particular and it fulfills a need. It fulfills a want. Somebody needs it. Somebody wants it. And it's necessary. And not only that, it edifies. It builds up. So it's particular. But not only was it particular, it was personal. Notice that Jesus didn't use his authority to appoint someone else to wash feet. Instead, he got down physically, got his hands dirty, got one-on-one, face-to-face with his disciples to wash their feet. It was personal. I think sometimes we we think we serve by association. That if we're around other people who are serving, even if our hands are in our pocket, we're still serving. Some people think that... Some, some believe that they are God's gift to humanity. And just their very presence is an act of service. I'm here now. And it's all wonderful because I'm here. I showed up. We've got plenty of people who just show up. We need more people who serve. The only person who has is, who is ever... Fi- fit that role, just God's gift to the world is Jesus. And he emptied himself and took upon the form of a servant. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So Jesus's service, Christ-like service is particular and it's personal. But thirdly, it's purposeful because Jesus understood that he was the example that all would look upon for generations to follow. He was particular and Personal on purpose. He wanted the world to see what true love looks like. The world is watching you serve. The question is, do you point people to Jesus through the gift of service? When you view your life as an offering, every moment you exist is to reveal to others the God that you know. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And then he said, I'm hard pressed between the two. I can't decide whether I'd rather go home and be with Jesus or stay and serve Jesus. But then he goes on to say, I know that I will continue on for your sake. 
so I can continue to serve you. Dr. Adrian Rogers said, we don't live in sinful exaggeration about ourselves or false humiliation, but in sober estimation. Now listen to what he says. I am what I am by the grace of God, and therefore now I am free to serve you. In other words, I know that Jesus loves me and he served me in this way, that he died for my sins. And now because I know that, I'm acceptable to God. And because I'm acceptable to God, now I don't have to prove myself to you. God has already accepted me. So I can be humble in your presence and serve you because I know where I stand with my God. And that's what... That's what Jesus, that was his whole motivation. He knew that he was going back to the Father. And he had one last chance to set the example. And what did he do? He served. It's a serving love. Let me tell you this. This is an axiom for your life. You are never more like Jesus than when you serve. I want you to hear that again. You are never more like Jesus than when you serve. You say, well, I haven't been serving very much lately. Well, what does that say about your walk with Jesus? Christ-like love is not only a steadfast love, not only a selfless love, not only a serving love, but lastly, a sanctifying love. Now look at the next part, verses 6 and following. He came to Simon Peter. You remember Simon, the denier, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? In other words, Peter's saying, hey, now, hold up. This isn't right. This isn't, you shouldn't be doing that. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't Peter saying, Lord, uh, I'm, I'm too bad for you to wash my feet. Peter's saying, we're both too good for this. <laughs> we need to get a, some other servant, maybe one of the other disciples. If you remember, you go back a little ways, you got John and you got uh, the, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and they're arguing about who's going to sit on the right and who's going to sit on the left. And that infuriates the other disciples. Because they want to sit on the right and on the left. It's not because they know that they're all just the lowliest of the low and they don't deserve to be at the right hand or left hand of Jesus. They all think that they deserve that spot. And Peter's sitting there saying, you're not going to wash my feet. You're, you're the master and I'm your second hand man. It doesn't work that way. We're going to get somebody else to wash my feet, Jesus. He'll wash your feet too, by the way. And so Jesus, Jesus said to him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Like Peter, just slow down just a second. Pay attention and you'll get it. You don't understand at the moment, but you're going to get this later. Okay, so just let it be done. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Let's time out for just a second. Jesus just skipped from the physical realm and went into the spiritual realm. You see that? You got to pay attention. 
Okay, I don't want you to miss this. Jesus is no longer talking about foot washing. He's using that as a metaphor for the daily cleansing of the Holy Spirit that must take place in each and every one of our lives. That once we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are cleansed and we are made clean before God. We are made righteous. But does that mean that we stop sinning? Somebody say no. No. You still with me? We still sin. And if we're honest, we sin daily. If we're really honest, we'll say we sin hourly at least. And so it's just like what Jesus is about to say to Peter. Listen, he's going to say to all the disciples, look, the one who's been washed is taking a bath. In other words, the one who's put their faith in Jesus and baptism is the outward sign of that covenant that's made. That person has been made clean in their heart, but they still live in the world. Their feet still contact the earth, right? That's the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense, we're still in a world of sin and we still sin daily. And so what do we need? We need daily to be cleansed, to be washed. And Jesus says to Peter, if I don't wash you, you don't have a part with me. In other words, if the sanctifying process, the cleansing of the Holy Spirit is not taking place in your life on a daily basis, then what that indicates about you is that you don't know the Lord Jesus. And you need to have a relationship with Him that sanctifies you, cleanses you, and makes you new every day. And you can have that. And Jesus is inviting anyone who would come, not just the disciples, but anyone who would come and be cleansed and washed by His sanctifying love. Jesus loves you just as you are. And He tells you to come just as you are with all your dirt, with all your sin, with everything that you have. But He loves you enough to not leave you there. He's going to cleanse you. When I was younger, we would play in the, the outflow of our pond that we had on the front part of our property. And uh, it would rain, the water would begin to overflow, and it would come down this perfect stream. And, and, and during the summertime, that, that beautiful green grass would just lay over with the water rushing down, and it would make this perfect slide off the pond dam. And we would get up at the top of the pond dam and run and jump and slide all the way down to the bottom. Well, after about the third or fourth time, that green grass had turned to a big mud pit. And we would be sliding down this mudslide. And we would get mud all over us. I'm talking about mud between our toes, mud in every crevice and orifice, the ears, our nose, our eyes. I mean, it was all in our hair. We would have mud and grass stuck all over us before we could come into the house. My mom would meet us there on the porch with the garden hose. And she would hose us off. Getting all that mud and dirt and grime and everything off of us before we could enter in. And listen, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. He is sanctifying us. If I had gone over to that muddy water of the pond and tried to clean myself up before I came in, came to my mother, I would have never gotten myself clean. I had to come to my mother to get clean. And in a similar way, you've got to come to Jesus to get clean. 
He doesn't want you to stay the way you are. He wants you to come the way you are and let Him sanctify you, cleanse you, make you a new person. And He loves you enough that He's willing to do that now, today, wherever you are, whoever you are. No matter what you've done, His love is a steadfast love. No matter how you've gone away from Him and you've run away from Him, His love has always been chasing after you. He's always loved you and He always will. You can't run too far away to get get away from God. Not only is His love steadfast for you, His love is a love that reaches down and lifts you up out of where you are, washes you off and cleanses you. So if you're willing and ready for the sanctifying love of God to come upon you today, I want to invite you to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Come to Him just the way you are and say, Lord, I need you. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're coming to Jesus today for the very first time and putting your faith in Him, I want to lead you in a prayer. And this prayer is your admission of your own sinfulness. The truth that you could never get into heaven on your own. All your good deeds will fail. One sin will keep you from heaven. But Jesus is willing to cleanse you and forgive you of all your sin if you'll confess today. And so this is that prayer. It's asking Jesus to save you from your sin, to make you a new person. So pray this prayer in your heart, right there in your pew. Say, Lord Jesus, I admit to you that I am a sinner. I've done things that I know are wrong and I've failed to do what I know is right. And I deserve the penalty for my sin. But Jesus, I believe that you lived that sinless life that I could never live. And you died on the sinner's cross for me, a sinner. Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Come into my heart. Clean me up and make me a new person. I'll spend the rest of my life living for you. And when I die, I'll be with you forever. And if you've prayed that prayer in your heart, the Lord heard it. So just say, thank you for my salvation, Lord Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. I want you to stand with me. We're going to have our hymn of invitation. This is our time for us to do business with the Lord. If you've prayed that prayer for the first time today and you're offering your life to Jesus, you come and share what Jesus has done. We want to celebrate with you. The angels in heaven are celebrating and we want to know about it so we can celebrate with you. And we want to encourage you and offer you resources to help you grow in your faith. And we also want to see you get plugged in to a discipleship group. And we also want to see you baptized in obedience to the Lord. So we want to offer those things to you. So you come. If you've been coming to Myrtle Grove for some time now, and you know the Lord has put it on your heart that this is the place that you belong, and you're coming today to join Myrtle Grove Baptist Church, we welcome you. This is your invitation to come. And if you simply need prayer, our altar counselors will be here to pray for you. And so you come. Use this invitation for the glory of the Lord. However he leads, you follow. Let's sing together. I surrender all.